Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Today's guest, Andrea Cargill, even through pain and loss and addiction, she still believes in God. She still believes in good. And she's out there helping others. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for sending me that bio. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Well, we try to keep it as basic as possible. I actually enlisted Kat Fuji to help me, (laughs) which was like a spin on everyday life, right? And of course, I do all the writing. So he was like, how about this, this, and this? And then you just make it sound good. So I was like, okay, thanks. Yeah, I am really curious how you and Chef Katsuji met and how you kind of have gotten into the chef scene. Oh, man, that's a very funny question. Kat actually was at a party in Chicago that I was at. And at the time, I was still working in corporate America, and I was really immersed into the architect and design community. So Neocon was occurring, which is this massive, like, three-day party. Everybody shows up to these extravagant get-togethers. And Kat was there with my competitor, which was just so funny. And I never watched Top Chef. So my friend was with me. She's like, that's Top Chef Katsuji Tanabe. And I was like, I don't know who that is. And I was like, do you want to meet him? And she's like, oh my gosh, I don't know. So I walk up to him. I'm like, hey, my friend's a big fan. Can we get a photo? Blah, 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 blah. So later on, he's like, hey, you should come to my restaurant. Okay. So I show up the next day with like seven people, clients and coworkers. He's not there. So I'm like, hey, chef, thanks. Glad that your hair is nice to meet you. He's like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot getting my hair cut. Sends us around the shot, sends us some food. He's like, what are you doing later? And I was like, well, I'm actually having a party. You're more than welcome to come. So he brings, again, my competition, which is just so funny to me. And we have this amazing party at Great Offs in the Dash. And then we went out and Kat and I just kind of stayed in contact from there. And I started to understand a little bit more about him, what was really important to him as far as like immigration, really helping people have jobs in the hospitality industry. And so I would just start firing ideas off to him. And he's like, my agent doesn't even think like this. So he's at a dinner and he's with another celebrity chef. They're interviewing a talent agency and Katsuji's like drilling them in usual Katsuji form. Then he says, he really needs somebody that doesn't take no for an answer, sends aggressive emails like my manager, Andrea. And then he's telling me the story. And I'm like, you did what? He's like, yeah, you represent me now. So here we are today. That's funny that you said he wanted somebody that didn't take no for an answer because I was looking at your Instagram and that's one of the quotes that you put up of Nipsey Hustle. Nipsey Hustle, yeah. Yeah, Nipsey did a lot of great things in his short time on this earth. And I really admired a lot what he was doing. And we actually were very well aligned with 
our determination to help steam grow in inner cities so to help the kids definitely yeah how did you get involved with giving back in that way so i was new to portland at the time the person i was dating was a coach of one of the d1 men's soccer teams and i've always loved professional sports i think my dad's drilled it into me since i was about three or as long as i can remember and i played soccer for a little bit i just loved the sport and so I was like, you know, there's a lot of technology occurring on the West Coast. Why don't I start a STEAM initiative that gives back to these kids that may not have these resources? So I started to do my research, partnering with the Technology Association of Oregon, who are tremendous people. They actually have me help them judge their tech awards every year, which I love doing. And I started reaching out to technology companies, asking for donations. We structured what we called like a tailgate. And we had marched to the match together, but all the money, and we partnered obviously with the Timbers, but we don't talk about that because I'm a Sounders fan, but they're tremendous business partners. We partnered with them and all the money just was then through Technology Association Oregon divided back into the community to help the kids. And then every community that Kat and I have opened up restaurants or had restaurants, we would just start reaching out like Chicago Fire, Carolina Courage, the women's team, they're totally on board to support this initiative. That is so cool. I feel like so many people would love to align with sports teams or different companies to get them on board to their causes. Like, how did you figure out how to navigate that? Like, even who to talk to? I just I just picked up the phone and started calling people. I think that's my old profession, right? I used to be called professionally persistent. And I would obviously... In business, you're told no 10 times before you get one yes. So I just did my due diligence, researched who I felt like might be the appropriate person. And if that wasn't the appropriate person, they referred me to who was. And then really didn't take much effort. Like people were blown away that something that was so near and dear to my heart literally cost zero dollars to start. Yeah, I would love you to talk about like how important it is to do work that you care about especially when you're like going through a life of tragedy in the background. Right. I think it's probably the thing that keeps me going. I really have a passion for helping kids because they're our future, right? We have to be concerned about what they're learning, what's available to them, because one day when we're older, who's going to take care of us, right? So I've really tried to align myself and find ways that I can give back. I think, you know, being in Chicago during the pandemic, I had never really been stationary for that long. So Dustin Kendrick from The Bachelorette, he started Guaranteed Karma, and he aligned himself with Youth for a Better Future. So I volunteered to go help them out, clean the, the STEAM Center. And then Adam and I just became extremely close. And now I'm on the board of directors. And there, he's just doing tremendous work for the kids. And I, I know you're from the Chicago area. So you know, Marshall Field. I mean, there's about 4,000 moms and children that we support with plans to grow throughout the Chicago community and then also to Africa. Prior to the pandemic as well, I was doing some work with the Trotter Project, 69th in Inglewood out in the South Side, helping those kids at the Montessori School. So it really, you know, coming from Washington State, yes, we have a lot of things that have occurred. However, when you're in the, the deep South Side of Chicago, you learn really quickly about your surroundings, what's happening, basically how to survive. And once you understand that, you're like, how can I help these kids and make their lives better? 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the stories that you've seen or that have stayed with you that have really made an impact on your life? Oh, absolutely. So I think, you know, we tend to gravitate towards certain individuals. And there was this one kid in the South Side who I said, hey, what do you want to do? And he's like, mm, I'm going to get into tech so I can make a lot of money for my family. And at the time, he was in Fashion Club, which I thought was really cool that even had that. And originally, that's what I was pursuing as my career pathway. And his teacher said, I won't say his name, but his teacher said, why don't you tell her the truth? And he's like, I really want to be in fashion. And I was like, get out of town. Like, that's my passion. I love it. And then we just started talking about, you know, really what motivated him. And I was like, hey, you could design an app that helps fashion designers and then take it from there. And then my good friends at Nike, the work for Nike, I told him about his story. And right before everything kind of shut down, the NBA All-Star game was happening in Chicago. And they were able to send him a pair of the Chicago Reds with a customized sign of like Spike Lee, you know, as a kid, and then growing up to Jordan, and it was like, chase your dreams. And I told them, you know, I'll be at your graduation one day, your circumstances do not make your future, like you can do anything you want to do. And he cried so hard, like he had never could have imagined owning a pair of Jordans. And that has stayed with me. I also have been in times where we were doing back to school drives, and a kid is by himself, rode his bike at like 6 a.m. to pick up backpacks for him and his five siblings. And one, as a parent, I was like, there's no way I would allow my child to be on a bike at 6 a.m. unsupervised, let alone would I even send him to go do this. And I was just like, wow, at like 13 years old, he was the head of the household taking care of them. So that was really eye-opening for me. As well as a couple months ago, one of our kids at the STEAM Center was at McDonald's in the north side of Chicago. And he was one of eight people shot and he was shot nine times and bless his mother. She took off her shirt, started, you know, plugging his bullet holes until EMS arrived and saved his life. But unfortunately now he has to live forever with shell casings inside of him or bullets inside of him. So it's just crazy. You know, those moments as human beings really rock you. And in my mind, when those things happen, I'm like, I have to do more. Like, what, what's next? Like, what can we do to help prevent this from occurring? Yeah, what can we do? How can people get involved? You know, I think really start to research, like, the STEAM centers in your community or community centers. I go back to Oakland and help Sam First Foundation. Like, in November, we handed out turkeys to the community. They are tremendous in helping the kids with back to school they work with NFL players, Marshawn Lynch being one of them. He does a football camp. But prior to that, they do a Great American Amusement Park Day. A, I forget what it's called, but it's like a water park day. They do a talent show that offers cash prizes, bowling nights in the past, like just so many different activities. Plus, they also teach like architecture camps, things that get kids, you know, thinking outside of the box and helping them realize their potential and what they would like to achieve. I think also any chance you can just to hand a backpack out, you know, at a back to school drive, that's doing something, right? Or if you're in a position to donate supplies or monies towards this, I think that's extremely important. Do you see yourself in any of these kids? Wow. I feel like I might cry. I don't in the sense of I was I come from a family I was very, very blessed. I never had daycare. I spent every single day of my life before and after school with my papa and my grandmother, who were truly my best friends in this lifetime. 
They were born in 1922, survived the depression. Papa served in World War II alongside of my great grandfather. We have articles about that. I mean, just tremendous things. But things that they taught me was we must always help people any chance we can. And I remember at Christmas time, our classrooms would adopt families. They would be anonymous, but we would find out, you know, everybody would bring food so they could have meals on that holiday and then find out what each child was looking for for Christmas. And my grandmother would just buy everything on the list. And to me, that was amazing because she was like, well, now we'll have double. We know that they'll eat more and then the kids will be happy with extra stuff. So that was always ingrained in me. And then also during food drives, I was always the kid who brought in the most food. And I, that kind of trickled into my adult life. Like when I was a manager, we would hold uh, food drives at my former employer, Valley Total Fitness, back in the day before they closed. And we would always bring in the most food. Also, you know, during the pandemic, I was side by side with World Central Kitchen feeding people. So I think I didn't experience these circumstances. However, my grandparents taught me just because you don't experience it, you need to understand what's going on around you. And we really need to step in and be a source of help and also seek to understand their situation. And I think that's also helped me with some of my friendships along the way. Like we're all from different backgrounds, but that doesn't mean anything, right? We all learn from each other. Wow. That's such a good lesson. My dad's going to really like that. I feel like he really tries to understand people too. And I feel like I don't volunteer enough. Like, I feel like in the beginning of my marriage, I tried to like cook for people when they had kids and give back to the community in that way. And then it went from me cooking the meals to actually just purchasing them and dropping them off. And, you know, having my kids knock on the door and bring the food in. And now that I've got four kids, you know, life gets busy, but I really do feel like that is such an important lesson to teach your kids. Right. And there's so many people that you don't even know that are struggling to even put food on the table, especially in this recession. Absolutely. Well, that was the part too, I think. Every Christmas morning, I do work with Cozy Connections and also my really dear friends. And we feed, man, I I think probably like 400 people, hot meals, plus we send them with meals to eat later. And in some situations, we're able to provide some clothing. It's weird when you do something year after year, right? You know the the people you will see time and time again because they obviously need it. But then there's times where people are super embarrassed to even show up. Like last Christmas, this man sat on the ground crying because he was eating a hot meal. And every time I leave, I am crying because I'm like, oh my God, like we have so much to be grateful for, you know, little things in life that we tend to take for granted, right? Like basic needs such as food. And same with, I remember Jose Andreas came to South Side of Chicago, which was amazing to help the people in Inglewood. But before that, you know, we were out there, I was doing some news interviews, which at times, you know, kind of gets weird because I'm like, I don't want, I don't want people putting these people on blast, right? Some were very fine with giving the interviews, but like, there was a dad who came and he's like, I have seven kids at home now because of this pandemic. and I just didn't know what I was going to do. So thankfully, we were able to feed them while this was occurring and, you know, partnered with Chicago Public Schools. But it's, it's definitely every time I, I'm learning something new, I come home with a different perspective. I also am curious, like, what have you learned in working with celebrities? <laughs> Always stay humble, first and foremost. I'll be, you can tell Kat, or you can ask Kat, I'll get on him so quickly if I feel like he is being crazy, not in a literal sense. But I'm like, never forget where you came from. You know, he doesn't forget that. But 
you know, other people too. A lot of my friends are in the league. A lot of, most of my clients are extremely humble though. So that's a beautiful thing. But I do, I have met people who are not. Also, they're normal people, just like us. A lot of them, you know, are extremely private about their private life and rightfully so. You know, it's hard sometimes being somewhere and we can't get through a meal because somebody is bothering us, right? Or I'm very good about telling my clients never say where we are. We've had instances where that's happened and like fans have showed up trying to, we were at Cal once and they tried to get into our private area and I was just like, this is crazy. In my personal life, you know, in the on NFL experience, same thing. And it's like, we have to be very protective over the photos that are, re- are being taken, basically how we're perceived, right? It's been an interesting ride. It can be exhausting at times because I'm absorbing all of my clients' energies and what's occurred in their life. And at the end of the day, they're people, right? Like I said, but when they read the hurtful comments, they try their hardest not to allow it to bother them, but it does. So I really have to dive in and kind of be like their therapist and say, you know, don't forget who you are, why you do this. This person doesn't know you. It's easy for anyone to say anything over the internet, which I've learned, unfortunately, in the last 14 months of my own personal life. And it doesn't matter. We're all human beings. We all have feelings. So I think it can be exhausting at times. Would you want to be famous? I don't think so. I think I'm, I'm very good at the behind the scenes. And I'm extremely protective over my son and my family. And I would never want my family to go through what I've experienced and witnessed on a day in and day out with my clients. However, I think there's instances where I am put in a public light that I think I just know how to navigate it now. And no matter what happens, regardless, I'm still going to be me. And I'm still going to make sure that my family and my friends, my personal life comes first before anything. What have you learned in navigating the media world? All publicity is good publicity, no matter if it's negative or positive. It's all in how you react to it and how you possibly spin it. Also, sometimes no response is a good response, right? No matter if that's your personal life or professional life, the media is going to always portray you for the subject matter any way that they want. And I think I've learned this the most in my personal life in the last 14 months more than anything. So it's really uh, up to us on how we respond. Media can be a tremendous tool for our personal brands, right? And our growth trajectories. However, we have to be mindful that it's still just a tool. It's not the end all be all. And there's going to be people who don't like you or people who have an opinion. And it's really just up to us just to stay authentic and be true to ourselves. And hopefully we change their opinion. And if not, it doesn't matter. We're, there's still people out there that are learning and growing and, and wanting to adapt some of our, some of the things that we've done. Can you talk about what you've experienced in the last 14 months? Yes, I can. Well, first, you know, I come from a place, it's a suburb of Seattle, where I would say the majority of us, we come from really great families. We've all had really amazing opportunities presented to us. Majority of my friends from growing up, we're still friends. I think sometimes when you have access to basically anything you want, choices arise. And you can either take a positive choice or a negative choice. So unfortunately, where I come from, a lot of my friends chose addiction. And obviously, addiction is a serious major topic to talk about. It's not just, you know, having the money to go buy drugs or whatever, because it's seriously like your mental health, what's going on in your life, things that have happened to you and how you respond to them. 
So literally for the last 22 years of my life, which is well over half of my actual existence in this world, I have buried my friends. And that's just been until I started to move to other cities and make other friends. I didn't realize like how out of the the norm that was. Most of them were to addiction. One was to cancer, suicide. Actually, one of our best friends was murdered by the LAPD. That was a case, wrongfully murdered. They had to apologize. And then my best friend, Brent, who I'm actually wearing his shirt. You can't really see it. It's BC Boys. Check your head. (laughs) Music was our thing. We have never done anything hard in our lives without each other. And Brent and I have been through significant traumas, finding, you know, one of our friends deceased numerous funerals holding each other's hands through those and june 12th of 2021 brent was really deep into his addiction he really hated being an addict he had gone through so many things in his life he'd gotten clean as you can imagine the pandemic some other personal issues of his brought him back into that world and he was doing something that obviously if he was here today i'd be like what the hell is wrong with you you should not be doing this. He was feeling catalytic converters, which I wasn't even aware was an issue until obviously my life changed due to this. He was in the process of stealing a catalytic converter out of a truck that he thought was vacant. And this man, who now I know so much about, and I wish I never had to know anything about, was asleep in the truck. And I know you've read the police reports. And so one thing I want you to keep in mind, when a homicide occurs, the police reports are not accurate because they have to leave some details out in order to build their case against the the individual and charge them, correct? So Brent was under the truck. This man shot him twice when he was under the truck. And then Brent was trying to get away. He shot him a third time. And Brent was getting into his truck. Then what the reports do not talk about, he actually removed him from the truck, shot him a fourth time. And then, which I'm, this is so crazy. I'm grateful to learn this. It took me two two months to actually learn this because prior to that, I was told he was shot three times and then proceeded to tie him to the back of the truck and drag him a very far distance. I've actually been there to see what that looked like. And he... So the original report said that Brent was alive. and But thankfully, what we learned was the fourth shot, out of those four shots, one of them was the deadly one. So he was thankfully not technically alive when he was struck. However, this individual then cleaned up the crime scene, drove Brent's truck down the street, tried to get rid of evidence, had Brent's wallet, his necklace, and then took off down the street. Thankfully, by the grace of God, there was witnesses, there was a camera. They were able to arrest him. And... He showed no remorse upon arrest. He obviously, there was so much evidence against him. And immediately they book him. And this was on a Saturday. So we don't really know details at that time. At that moment, the chaplain calls Brent's family. I'm on the phone with his most amazing mom, Dina. We, we've been through so much stuff of life with Brent. It's always me that had to call her when he was always in trouble, which is weird how the last 14 months of shape but we were under the understanding at first that he was stabbed because at first they went since he picked up the shell casing his injuries were so drastic like they just assumed he was stabbed so we spent 48 hours thinking to ourselves we didn't even know where this occurred we thought this was at somebody's home 
that this was going to be self-defense. We were fully intending to forgive this man and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that your life has just been flipped upside down, right? We had no idea of those details. And then Monday morning was arraignment. Somebody had sent me the police report. I'm still in Chicago when this happened. And I wasn't flying home until Wednesday, which ironically, I was flying home for my dad's one year anniversary since he passed away too. So like, it was just a lot happening in that moment. And there's like sounds coming out of my mouth that I've never heard in my life as I'm reading these details, right? Imagine thinking one thing and then reading all of these horrific details. So I had to text his mom and I said, the police report is out. It is evil. So she gets some of his family together. She calls me and I have to read his mother these graphic details of really how Brent was taken from us. And she's gasping. I never heard her like this. And she's apologizing as she's crying that I had to tell her. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like this is insane. Well, he pleads insanity. So he doesn't even go to arraignment. And the judge was so angry that she charged him with two murder, two charges, kidnapping, because one for the dragging and one for the shooting. So obviously then we had to go through this amazing advocate who taught us now for the rest of our lives, we are labeled as co-victims of a homicide, which is strange, but at that moment, it provided me some clarity in that confusion. And then they began to prep us for how the future could look as far as hearings go, court dates, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I feel like for the last 14 months, I've just been living in a nightmare that I can't wake up from because he continued with his sanity plea. He was evaluated three different times. So finally, July 26th, so over a year after he committed this crime, we were finally going to have our day in court. I also learned when you plea insanity, you can only be evaluated three different times under that court case number. So there's all these things I'm learning. I'm like, okay, we're finally going to have our day in court. And it was, what, five days before court. I'm logging in to the Pierce County website to see just to make sure court was really happening because there's been so many reschedules in this process. And I am done. They say court was canceled and court was being held at that very exact moment that I'm reading this. And I'm just like, wait, what? And his mom and entire family are on vacation, like four hours away. So I'm frantically reaching out to her. I'm like, court's happening right now. Nobody from the prosecutor's office called us to tell us that it had changed. We were robbed of our day in court to hear what was going to happen to this person. And then all of a sudden, I'm logging back in and see his charges have been dismissed. And he was in a 72-hour hold in Western State, which is the mental hospital in Washington, for another evaluation. And I have to tell you, it was like, I don't know if it, it could be worse than the actual day that Brent was murdered, but it was like, we were being robbed all over again. And there was no explanation. Still at this point, nobody from the county called us. Nobody from the prosecuting office had called us. It was poor run day. And... I had to do a lot of soul searching and I was thinking to myself, Brent would tell me right now to keep the highest faith, to have the highest faith, seek forgiveness, because that's how he lives. No matter how bad of a thing occurred in his life, that is always what he's, I mean, I have it in writing from him saying those words to me. I've done my dig, digging and finally when the prosecuting office did call, you know, she said they'll hold him there and 
we don't know how long he'll be in Western state. And we said, okay, well, can you guarantee a son when, if and when they feel he is competent to leave, that then you contact the county and charge him. And then we go through court again and hopefully he goes to jail. She said, no, I can't guarantee that. And I was just like, wait, excuse me, what? But in theory, they're supposed to have a 30-day notice to say we're going to release him so that they can charge new charges again towards him. I also learned that just because you're deemed incompetent to stand trial doesn't mean that you're not deemed to live on your own. So, I mean, I know that's a lot. That was just like a lot thrown your way. There's obviously more details into this process as far as the funeral and all of that. But that was life-changing. I definitely approach life much differently today than I did 14 months ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. First of all, I am so sorry that you've had to go through all of this loss. I cannot imagine. And it coinciding with your dad's funeral, I just cannot imagine. I would be incapacitated, I feel like. How do you get through something like that? um, I definitely have a village. There's a few of us left. There's five of us, really, I would say, that are left that have gone through all of these horrific, tragic things in our lives. But we've all really explored outside of home, right? And has seen what the world has to offer us. We lean on one another a lot because not only do we understand what we're going through, but at the same time, we don't have to ask one another, like, how are you doing? We just understand it. And then we offer each other lessons we've each learned from each one of our loved ones that have passed. And like, obviously, sometimes one person might have a stronger relationship with the other, and then vice versa. So We've been in true reflection mode, I feel like. And unfortunately, one of our best friends just recently passed away on July 12th. And so at the end of this month, we're having his funeral. And I just really thought after Brent's funeral, I never, this wasn't going to be a thing for me anymore. But we've really been focused on the positive that we've learned from each individual. And, you know, I have to say, I learned a lot too. I had to pick Brent's pallbearers, which was like a really interesting experience for me. Then I had to have each individual conversations with the guys to ask how they felt about it. And then, you know, really have everybody weigh in to make sure everybody was fine with who we picked as pallbearers. And then not even just that, but like after I watched them like carry him in a casket and then lower him in the ground, I was like, hey, like, how are you feeling? And like, really, like, how did that feel? Like, that's just crazy to me. And, you know, before this conversation, I called one of my best friends, Bartlett. And he's kind of like, he doesn't know this yet, but he's about to be my publicist. No, I'm kidding. But he always has the best like way to phrase something and approach something, especially if it's been difficult. And he's like, you're like the mama of the group. He's like, you're not old. But he's like, you know, you've always just kind of held us together. You've always been kind of like the glue. You always have the wisdom. You're always like, we're going to get this done and we're going to get through it. So I think having that support is unmatched, right? And then family has always been extremely supportive. My my mom she may not always understand the way I do things, but she always is like, she's gonna do it. Like, it took me some time to prove to her, like, I have my ways, but I always end up having a result for it, right? So I also try to focus significantly on the positive. So like this with Brent, I'm gonna try to find a way to really help families who have a loved one who's addicted. and really try to help society to understand that these are people. This is not, this is a human being. They have feelings. A lot of times addicts feel things, emotions very deeply. And that's why they turn to drugs or alcohol. So they don't have to feel things, right? And try not to read, this was a national news case. 
And at first I never thought I'd be okay talking about this, but if we don't talk about it, nothing can change. And so, and actually this is the first time I'm talking about that I haven't cried. And Bartlett also helped me with that today. (laughs) So there is horrible, horrible, horrible comments. And I know you read some of them. People who said, I hope his death wasn't slow, that thief deserved to die. You know, just applauding this human being who has a very violent past. He's been arrested in the in the past for domestic violence. He's a felon. He actually had been in Western State before evaluated in 2008. And so this is not the first time. And I felt so bad. Like, I happened to catch the comments when the news article came out after his charges were dropped. I felt horrible because there was a girl who commented, upset that these people were applauding him. And she's like, he beat up my aunt so many times. I cannot believe you're applauding this monster. And then his nephew chimed in and was like, he needs to be locked up and never in society ever again. And I don't know these strangers, obviously, but this man has significantly impacted many lives. And I have to wonder, people who applaud murder or murderers and like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's going on in your life to, to justify murdering someone? Like, yeah, feeling is awful. I feel like if Brent had not been murdered, by all means, I would have been like, lock him up. He needs to learn his lesson. However, it's just like, society has just become so insensitive, right, to what others are going through. They judge addiction. I don't know. I don't get why we judge addiction so much. You know, I read one, oh, this person must come from a horrible family and have terrible friends. And I'm like, yeah, uh, Brent was surrounded by love. Granted, yeah, he did have people that were not always the best influences for him. But the majority of like his family, tremendous human beings, his friends, like the ones that stayed by his side and, and literally buried him, tremendous human beings. So I just, there's got to be a way that we talk about this and educate people. What have you learned about the addiction community that you didn't know? Really just how heartless people are towards addicts and how judgmental they are. A lot of it, you know, is mental health. And we just don't have a lot of resources, right, to help people in this country. And prior to COVID, I've been really focused on justice reform because one of our really dear friends, Daryl, is an African-American, which the demographics of where we're from is primarily white. And he was with some people who committed a crime. They threw the book at him. He's currently on his 16th year out of 33-year sentence for something he did not do. So I've been really motivated and I've been researching the bills. He's been working endlessly on researching this. They denied him of education in there, by the way, which is just mind-blowing, but that's a glimpse into the justice system. As you can imagine, when he learned the outcome of Brent's trial, Brent was one of his best friends as well. He was just like, he had to go to the therapist. Thank God he did. Because I can't even imagine being in his position learning this, right? And so seeking to understand, like my great, my grandparents taught me, I wish that everybody would do that. Because then we'd start being more sensitive and caring towards addiction and not just view them as bad people or people who just commit crimes, right? It would help a lot of the homeless, you know, problems that we have happening across this country. And then if we offered mental health, it would significantly improve a lot of things. All of these things go hand in hand and there's just gotta be a better way. And thankfully in my prior life of working, you know, negotiating contracts 
you know, with the federal government on behalf of a corporation. And then also Katsuji and I did some work with James Beard in Congress to write some bills. I understand that process a lot better. And I know it's important too, like, obviously, in the last few years, things have been extremely political, but if you really want your voice to be heard, you have to do it in a way that everybody leans into you. And you can't just side with one side. You have to be able to get your point across so that people are willing to see the change and make the change. I love that. You know, that's really a journalistic perspective, I feel like. It's not having a, an agenda of what you want to be getting out of the person, but seeking to understand them from more of like a curiosity perspective. And I would like to right. hear a little bit more about that James Beard chapter. That's really interesting too. How did that come about? It was really cool. Kat got invited. Well, they invited both of us because, you know, I, I represent a few celebrity chefs in the culinary world. And Kat was one of the 150 chefs that they selected to come be a part of this packed filled like four days in Princeton, which was amazing because just the history of Princeton is so significant, you know, to this country. And being a part of something with all these amazing creative minds and really diving in and learning from them. Plus, love was there, which for me, I'm, I love music, you know, like every type of music. And he was there. He gave us all his cookbook, which was tremendous. Like, obviously, I've learned more about Quest since this moment. But just, he's just very thought-provoking and easy to talk to and listen to. Not everybody's easy to listen to. And I think that's another lesson I think we all should learn is to listen, but also when we approach people, be easy to listen to. So we just kind of worked on some things. The Congressman Blumenauer, I always say his name wrong, so I apologize, from Oregon was there. Somebody from, I want to say Maryland was there. And we just started writing, like, Katsuji obviously was focusing on immigration. For me, it was like, no kid hungry, but also like farmers and farm workers' rights. A lot of people don't realize during the last few years, so many farmers have taken their own lives or their kids have taken their own lives because they weren't receiving the funding they were promised. Obviously, agriculture has taken a huge hit with global warming, with temperatures rising or flooding or all these different elements occurring. So we really just composed our plans and then we, we challenged each other to get 10 new people to register to vote. So 150 people times 10 you know, that's not a lot, but that was our way at that moment to try to encourage. So that actually, that led me to joining the committee with Vote Early Day. So it was interesting how that played out. I just cannot believe all that you're involved in. How do you have time for all of that? And is this going to be like your legacy? Is this how you want to make an impact? I still feel like I'm just getting started. And I still feel a lot of these things I do is just what was instilled into me by my family. I feel most fulfilled knowing that I'm giving back to the communities that I live and work in. And I've always had this rule, you can never know too many people. And it's led me into tremendous opportunities. Hopefully one day I get to tell you the sausage roll story that just happened last week in an English pub watching footy. It was the, the England's women's soccer team. Hopefully it ends up the way I think it's going to go, but you just never know, right? Timing well, now you got to tell me. <laughs> I'll tell you offline, <laughs> but we'll have to revisit that. I don't want to jinx it, but I think it's going to be tremendous with a very strong, like, like-minded woman in the sports industry, which is really exciting to me. 
I recently was accepted into the NYU Global Sports Management Program because my nephew, Jaden, he is a pitcher. He just started football. I've said since he was seven, he's going to be a quarterback. My dad, ironically, when he was one, gave him a shirt that said future Seahawks quarterback in training. When I was four, my dad taught me how to throw a spiral and said, if you can throw this, you can throw anything. So I taught Jaden when he was seven. And then Jaden's like pitching like there's no tomorrow he's hitting he just turned 13 but prior to this he was hitting grand slams he's almost as tall as me has like a men's 10 and a half foot so I was like he tells everyone my PT he doesn't really understand what I do but he goes my PT is my coach and she's gonna make me a lot of money one day and I'm like okay well I better like get the ins and outs of the sports world before he's like my last client right but it's just amazing when you start to change your thinking and explore different opportunities than something such as the sausage roll occurs. (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. You never know where it's going to take you for sure. Yeah. Is there any like experience that pops out in your mind of something that you accomplished that you never would have imagined? Well, really this year, 22 has been a tremendous year for business. And a lot of things that CapCG and I planted four years ago are like blooming and like they're becoming wildflowers. And it's just been a really cool ride to see that because let's face it, COVID was really difficult. And we had to shift our thinking and approach business in a much different way, which actually this is a funny story. So I was like, Kat, we can't do events. CapCG obviously thrives on events. He loves to be like the center of attention. And we ended up partnering with Howie D's people and created, we're going to do this online cooking event. And naturally, like when I'm in person, I know like I'm sitting in a green room, right? Like when we did Kelly Clarkson, I'm sitting in the green room. I'm used to this stuff. I don't know what I was thinking. Like Zoom would be no different. So I'm in in an Uber in Chicago. I have pineapple hair. Thank God I have a mask on because it's like June of 2020. And Howie D just pops up on my phone and like 15 year old me is like, oh my God, I'm mortified. Like, I can't believe you look like this right now. And I was like, why didn't I think the green room would be any different than like in real life over the Zoom? So it ended up being a really cool event that they did together. And then all the proceeds went back to their charities, which I thought was really cool. And obviously helped redirect Kat Suji. He wouldn't have possibly done that before. So we've really stepped outside of the box to think of different ways we create the branding, right? I would have to say, it's not like a big deal, but I was at Hangout Fest, Kat got to cook for like Post Malone and Fall Out Boy, but I had this bracelet that you could virtually go anywhere and because they put me as part of production. So I was in like literally the crow's nest of Illinium and I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm still a fan. And I was just like, this is the greatest moment ever. And then Fallout Boy, they couldn't allow anybody on stage because they had pyrotechnics. But I was literally got to sit in the front and you could feel the flames coming out of Pete Wentz's bass guitar. And I was just like, and 20 year old me right now is just like back and alive. So I think it's just moments that I've actually come to this point of my life, right? That I get to experience all this amazing opportunities that life has to offer. And no matter what has occurred in life, no matter how horrible something has happened, there's always something amazing on the other side of it. And there's a lot still to look forward to. I love that. How's your book coming? Are you writing a book? (laughs) It's it's on the same out. I am writing a book. 
I started it right before Brent and she has this tremendous author out of North Carolina and she's so funny. She's like, Drea, you're going to piss a lot of people off. And I was like, I've been doing that my whole life. But if we can change at least two people's opinions, that's all that matters. But, you know, I think Brent's story is going to be significant, like in the middle of the book, because it will give me a chance then to talk about all those important things, right? Of addiction, loving somebody incarcerated, things that a lot of people don't know about me. No, I've been through some horrific things in relationships, and I wouldn't be who I am today without it, though. So I never have a regret in life. I just take it as, okay, what did I learn from this? And how, I always say we don't go through things, we grow through things, right? So I'm constantly looking for the growth opportunity, and then hopefully I learn the lesson and prevent something like that from occurring again. Obviously, you know, Brent, you can't ever prevent that from happening. But, you know, like I said, I feel more comfortable now talking about addiction. I didn't really before, even though I lost so many people near and dear to me due to it. And now I finally feel like I need to use whatever platform I have to speak about this. And so definitely in the book, you will read a lot about what has occurred in my life from family dynamics, personal, professional, et cetera. Can you give me a little teaser? Yeah. One of the cool parts is so growing up, I've always, I mean, I have very strong female friends. I only am friends with females who empower other females, which I think is amazing. And I ha- I'm surrounded by them all the time. However, the majority of my friends growing up have always been guys. And one of the cool things about it, I don't know how I have been so blessed for this, but like my dad always wrote me. My dad was an airman in the Air Force and flying is everything to him, traveling. I get that from him. He always wrote me, whether it was like handwriting or emails when he was deployed to Iraq. and my papa always wrote me. My I have notes from my son because I used to write him notes in, in school and he was like in kindergarten just learning. So I'd write him a note in his little lunch bag. And one day, I still have it. I carry it around with me every day. It's in a notebook. He wrote this note that says, I see cat. I love you. Geo. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. I got a note back. And then I have notes from Brent, which are significant in his handwriting. It's just, it means everything to me. So in certain chapters of the book, I've decided I'm going to be vulnerable and share some of those letters from my favorite men in my life and start the chapters off like that. So you wow. can see those relationships I had. Yeah. I love that. And especially like if you could actually show like some of their handwriting, I feel like that would be so crazy. Yeah, that's really special and very personal. Also, can you talk just a little bit about your dad and and his service and how he sacrificed for the country? Oh, my God. Yeah, so I come from a very long line of military personnel. I was basically one of the only ones not to join. The joke was I was a brat. Probably not a joke, but my papa and my great-grandfather served in the Navy. My dad's dad served in the Air Force. My dad's mom served in the Army. She was a sergeant first class. My dad, the Air Force, two of my sisters, Air Force, my brother, Army, my uncle, National Guard. So literally, like, at one point, one of my sisters, my brother, my dad, my uncle all deployed. So it was an interesting time. My dad was in the Gulf War, and then obviously, after we declared in 2003, he went. My dad loved it. He just, I mean, it was bred into him, I think. Afterwards, you know, he still did some things, you know, with cargo, like importing, exporting. Thankfully, he retired many years before he passed. But there's something to be said when you're sitting in your father's 
funeral and there's the honor guard doing their salute to him and you have the shell casing from that and you see this flag you know being folded and presented and taps is playing and at this time like my dad passed away unexpectedly on father's day of 2020 and i very instinctual i had had it i was like okay i'm I'm in chicago now for three whole months I, i fly so much like being there for three months is crazy so I'm like, I'm going to fly home and surprise my dad for Father's Day. And thank God that occurred. So I landed in Seattle. It was a Thursday. I go, Daddy, guess what? I just landed in Seattle. What do you want to do for Father's Day? And he was beside himself. Like, he couldn't believe it. So he ended up cooking me my favorite food, which was his ribs. And it had our secret family recipe in it. We had a tremendous time together. And unfortunately, my dad had cardiac arrest that night at 10 p.m. Thankfully, the hospital was very accommodating to us. They allowed my uncle, my stepmom, and myself in the room. And as soon as I got there, I touched my dad. He has this eagle tattoo on his left arm from eagles were very important to him and it represented, you know, flying in the Air Force. And I touched it. My dad, they had declared him brain dead because he had lost so much oxygen by the time he got transported. And he moved his lips. And I I don't know where I found this strength, but I said, it's okay, daddy, I'm here. And it, it's okay. You can now. And I, I felt like my dad at that moment really just like let go. It was like he needed me to be right there. And I know it's so sad that I don't have my dad. But you can't, you can't like duplicate moments like that in life. I feel so extremely blessed that I was there and not in Chicago. And that we had one last meal together. And actually, this is crazy. My dad never gave anybody that recipe. And I said, that day, I was like, Kat and I are going to open a new restaurant. We'd like to put one of your recipes on the menu. We went through every single family recipe. Ironically, my grandfather kept his <laughs> recipes in a flight book from the Air Force, which is hilarious. And we did not, like, decide on any of them. So he goes to me, one day when you market my rub, I get 30%. And he winked at me. And I was like, well, obviously, I need the recipe to do that. And so the last text from my dad before he passed away that night, he sent me that recipe in his handwriting. And I just have no words for that. And, you know, I'm just going to take that as something in him new but to give that to me so you know one day Kat and I will work on something for my dad and his rub and then one day I'd love to have my dad's ribs on the menu because that was the last food that he made me oh my god that feels like from heaven I mean seriously I don't know like your relationship with God but that feels holy that's interesting so I'm baptized Catholic I grew up, my, this is so crazy. My grandmother was a Jehovah's Witness. My papa was Irish Catholic. So talk about night and day, right? But this is where seeking to, to understand and accepting people for who they are and where they come from comes into play, right? So I watched my grandmother get shunned a lot by people over her religion. And even though I'm a Catholic, I still would go with her to support her to understand what she believed in. And same thing, she would celebrate my birthday with me. She'd celebrate holidays with me. So she would, you know, she still did what she felt was important to her and what she wanted to do with her family. And then my dad's side of the family was Lutheran. So I was just surrounded by different types of religions. And I always just wanted to know, like, what does that mean? And then a lot of my friends were Mormons as well. And then actually, you'll love this. One of my really good friends in LA in April invited me to Shabbat dinner. Yeah, I got to bring Bartlett. It was amazing. We had such a good time. It was an experience I will never forget in my life. Just the people who were present for that. One person's grandfather wrote Citizen Kane. Crazy. So we had just like tremendous meal, a tremendous prayer. 
tremendous tradition. Obviously, Catholicism is very traditional. But yeah, I, I do believe, you know, in a higher higher power, I do believe there's God. I am very much a person, though, every day that says what I'm grateful for when I wake up and when I go to bed at night. I think about that often. Like, I had a moment like this with my grandmother, too, the day before she passed. She told me, you're the greatest granddaughter I could ever ask for, and I'm just so proud of you. And I was like, okay. Like, not realizing she's telling me goodbye. And I actually, the next night, she woke my papa up, and she said she needed help going to the bathroom. So he picked her up, and she passed. She goes, I love you, and passed away in his arms. Like, that's, like, what dreams are made of, right? Like, you're in the love one, literally, of your of the love of your life. And then... I remember making a pact with Papa saying, if you feel like you can tell me it's your time, please. So we had a good, a few moments, like he and I took final communion. They came in, read his final rites. It was just he and I. And then he'd kind of gone to sleep, came in, and he heard my voice. And he had like a washcloth over his eyes. And it was already, his eyes were starting to glaze over. And he said to me, I go, Papa, who are you looking at? Because he was looking up. And he's like, I don't know who they are. And I made a joke, right? Like, oh, at least you're looking up and not down. You know, somebody up there is waiting for you. And then I was like, okay, best friend, it's time to sleep. And then he snaps out of his trance and he's like, we are best friends forever. And I'm going to wait for you every single day until it's your time to cross over. And I was like, oh my God, like my mom and aunt are crying. I'm trying to keep myself together. Cause I was like, that's the last thing he said. And that he said it to me. So those moments, I actually had a weird thing with Brent as well. It's not weird. Definitely, you know, divine intervention. And I woke up in Chicago, startled, sat up, looked around the room. There was nothing going on. There was no sound. Went back to bed, texted my mom. And I woke up like, I woke up at this time. It was crazy. I, I was scared. Like, I didn't know what was going on. I later found out at that moment was the time of death for Brent. So he found a way for me to be with him even at the end. So I, I'm a firm believer, you know, we have definitely people watching over us. And I lean into those moments. I mean, how can you not? You must have like a close relationship with God to get those kinds of moments. I feel like my dad gets those kinds of moments and he totally believes in them. Like he gets them more than me. I'm like, I think it's skipped a generation, but he's had moments like that. It's crazy. I feel like some people get them more than others. Yeah, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I I don't really go to math, which is funny, but I actually had somebody who is a very devout Catholic tell me, because I see like reoccurring numbers a lot, and I definitely am a believer, like just in signs, I guess, and they come to me at certain moments, and she's like, you know, we're Catholic, and we're not supposed to believe in that, but she's like, there's no coincidence in this. Like, you definitely are different, like between your dreams and these experiences have you had you know I think there's also a beauty by the way when you're with your loved one with when they pass away as if you're in the room when a baby is born right there's still something that's very comparable there that's beautiful um I don't know I definitely feel blessed I know I have angels with me and I don't really want any more angels so I'd like to put that out into <laughs> the universe like please stop giving me more but there's also a comfort to know that I have so many people watching over me and with me every single day to help me navigate everything that's going on in this life. I love that. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? How does your dad receive everything that you share with him on a daily basis? And by the way, I admire that because that's how my papa I would go to for anything like personal and my dad was always business. So how does your dad receive that? How did that relationship even 
formed for you to know like that was your person that you could lean on? That's such a great question. I can just tell you that sometimes I think I'm too much for my dad lately, (laughs) but he still (laughs) listens to everything I have to say. And I do feel like people need that, especially right now. Right. Absolutely. So even just being an active listener or having somebody that you can call that can really just take you at any level, like that is something that we all need, but he's willing to sit through all of it. I mean, some people just get off the phone with you. (laughs) Right. That's my, that was my dad too. Sometimes he would be very silent, but he definitely let me talk it through. It's interesting reading some of those old emails from him when he was deployed. I, I guess they didn't make sense to me at that moment of life. But then when you fast forward like 18 years later, I was like, wow, now it makes sense. How amazing that he corresponded with you in that way. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Writing is important to me. Definitely. In like books, I will always give a book with a message that I write in there. I have a Bible that was my papa's, was his grandfather's. Like there's lots of different people that obviously I've never known. They were before my time, but it's cool to have that. And I think it's pretty impactful just to see like their handwriting because that's a little glimpse into who their who their personality was and then just the words that they wrote. When is this book coming out? I don't know. I've I've literally put it on hold. Like I said, Brent kind of changed the direction and I'm all about detours in life, right? It helps us adapt and and learn. Maybe that path wasn't the way we were supposed to be on. Uh actually Cat Foodie's working on a book too and I'm kind of got like my head like deep down into the weeds with that learning a lot about publishing which is good for me because then I can kind of go out on my own and do this probably much more efficiently than it had began over a year ago and I don't know we'll see I've learned that it takes about 18 months to two years to even get a book published and out so it's definitely a process definitely working on some other projects with my five best friends which is really cool. We're just seizing the opportunities that have come our way, I guess. And like I said, just trying to take hard times and turn them into a positive and hopefully help people any chance that we can. I love that. Okay, well, let people know how they can connect with you. And I will be the first to be a beta reader and help promote this book when it does come out. So keep me posted. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Usually just Instagram. So at Drea Cargill, D-R-E-A-C-A-R-G-I-L-L. That's probably the best way. I'm really responsive. Yeah. Any questions people have, I'm an open book. I definitely believe in transparency and that's the only way we're going to learn, right? Is if we talk about it. We got to give Arsiak, who is a woman supporting woman, in our community oh. a little shout out because she's how we originally connected Arcy, yes. and I just love her I know I've learned so much from Arcy like we've worked on some things together and her perspective and just everything she's been through she's one of the strongest females I have a pleasure of knowing I keep telling her she's gonna be the, the latest Oprah like I just I know it for like a million times over her hard work how she relates to people, just her journey. Like she's just a remarkable human being. But yeah, that if it wasn't for RCAC, we would not be here today. And then obviously, so thank you so much for having Kat Fuji on. I had to tell you, I was extremely intrigued by the fact that you had Jerry Springer on and then to learn that he had a hand in your career. I was just like, wow, like that was just, that was really cool. That was intriguing to me. Thank you. Yeah, that's where it all began. And talking about like understanding where you came from and kind of like understanding your path during the pandemic, just like really reflected on all of that. You know, it was like, man, 
wonder like how much he really knew how he impacted my life. I just so badly like wanted to have that conversation, which was so cool. Yeah, I think too, I mean, after you lose some of the most important people in your life, you, I will, well, I hope. From my experience, I've gotten in a habit, right, of really checking in on myself to see like, am I the best version of myself? Am I being the best friend? Am I being the best daughter? Am I being the best partner? Am I doing what I should be doing in my career? You begin to really understand the who, the what, and the why that's the most important. And it's okay to walk away from relationships that don't fit that. And it's not anything bad. It's just, we have to prioritize ourselves first and foremost. We have to create boundaries. We have to focus on making ourselves the best so that we can have these healthy, positive relationships and then remind people how much they mean to us. You know, the reaction that I got from that Jerry Springer episode from his publicist, honestly, shout out to Linda Schaffrin, like was more important to me, honestly, than anybody else's response. I mean, she was just like, I haven't heard him do an interview like that in 25 years. She said the interview like brought her to tears. I really like honestly wish that I could have recorded our conversation after. Like that meant so much to me because I felt really invested in the conversation. Like I listened to so many podcasts he was on. I read his bio. I read everything online that I could find, you know, about him, but I already knew him. You know what I mean? But I like really prepared for it. And the fact that she made that happen and then was happy with how it went meant so much to me too. Yeah. That's awesome. Those are those moments, right? That shape us a little bit that we don't forget. Oh my God. Yeah. Would you say that's like in one of your top like professional moments for you? Oh God. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because to be honest, like it's not the most listened to episode, which you would think it would be. I mean, it it did do well, but like Yeah, for me, it was so much more about just like thanking him for making such a difference in my life and in my career and like getting to understand 20 years later, like what was it like for him at the same time? Right. It's it's crazy, right? Like, so actually I do have a question for you because this is something since the passing of our recent friends do so unexpected. We really leaned on each other and we're like, we can write three letters to, you know, three different individuals who would it be and why? So if you could write a letter to three different individuals, who do you think those letters would be written to and why? Okay, I'm just going to go with who first came to my mind. So a big reason that I actually decided to again reach out to Jerry because I'd had yeses and nos was because I had a music teacher who honestly rejected me from a youth performing arts school. And my dad went to this music instructor and was like, what does she have to do to re-audition? And I literally swallowed my pride took singing lessons, took music lessons, learned how to play the piano and pluck out all the music, learned how to sing in a foreign language, re-auditioned and got in. But the thing was, is that I never felt accepted because I was rejected that first time. And for four years, I stuck it out with this teacher. Four years, I wanted to quit. Four years, I felt like the worst of the best. I was surrounded by incredible talent like Nicole Scherzinger and Sarah Gettelfinger that made it to Broadway and all these really big people who were just unbelievable talents. And the thing is, is when you surround yourself by that kind of talent, like after four years, it does somewhat wear off on you, but he died during the pandemic. And I never got to circle back with him and really let him know that like, you know what, me sticking out that program led to so much. Honestly, it led to everything that I do now. And he was a hard freaking teacher, man. He was he was really tough. I was very intimidated by him, but I never got to tell him what an impact he made in my life. And that 
was definitely an impetus for reaching out to Springer. So he's one. Then I had this crazy aunt, God bless her soul. She uh, never had kids. <laughs> she was a great aunt. She was a sister to my great grandmother. My mom had me young. I'm from Kentucky. So I knew a lot of my great grandparents and I was raised by my grandparents as well. God bless her soul, man. This woman, she wrote so many journal entries and shared every travel adventure with everyone in the family. I don't even think anybody ever gave her the attention back that she needed. I think I would write her a letter back, <laughs> you know, like actually reflect <laughs> on all her hard written work that she did. And Evie deserves a response. She gave presents to everyone at every holiday. She never had any kids, you know, it's like she had a whole attic full of just knickknacks that That's she'd give so out funny. to people you know, and she just documented her whole life. She was like an early documentarian and she did not get the response to all that hard work that she deserves, man. She gave to everyone in the family. <laughs> that was like a different generation right there. Like the kind of giving that the right. ancestors did, man. She wrapped gifts, personalized them. She would surprise people with things you never would expect. And she deserves a letter. Who would the third one be? Oh my gosh. Probably one of my sisters because they've moved across the seas. Both of my sisters live in Israel and live much different lives than me now, which is crazy because we all grew up in Kentucky. Both of my sisters married somebody from abroad and yeah, we're like on different time zones and we all have so many kids now and our lives are just, it's hard to catch up with each other. So I'd probably write, yeah. I'm going to take three and four and I'll probably write each one of them a letter too. <laughs> That's awesome. I love how you thought of people, you know, like that weren't necessarily here with us, like, you know, living. Because that's kind of where we went as well with it. And then, you know, obviously, still there's a few people I, w I wanted to write that were living. But I think it's important that we always reflect, right, on the lessons we learned from people that are no longer amongst us. And when we acknowledge that, that helps their legacy go on, too. And I think that's extremely important. Wow, that is so beautiful. My dad is going to absolutely love that. We were literally talking about legacy today. I'm like, Dad? I don't think I see eye to eye with you about what this is. And it's funny too, because I mean, my grandmother's 93 and she just recently has gotten like rehabilitation. Like, you know, if you get admitted to the hospital, then all of a sudden they grant you rehabilitation. And when you get rehab, it makes such a difference. Like now she can walk better. Now she can get it, you know, in and out of a chair better. She's able to feed herself better. These little things that we take for granted. And I'm like, God, you know, do I want to like look forward to little things like that? But my grandmother, my God she appreciates every moment on this earth. God bless her. Not everyone, especially at 93 is like that. You know, when you start thinking, no. like, you're like, right. You're like, do I want to live like that? You just start asking like all these deeper questions. Right. But my dad has right. that too. Like he really wants to live every breath he can. And then, you know, I've got grandparents on the other side that are signing up for a nursing home. And I'm like, my other grandma never would want that. So it's really interesting to see, right. like, you know, I grew up with all four of my grandparents and honestly, four or five of my great grandparents, like I have really been influenced by other generations and knowing them. I knew my great grandmother until I was 24. Yeah. It's really crazy. That's, That's what so interesting living is. <laughs> I had four, all four of them. And then I had two of my great grandmas and they both passed away at 93 when I was 21. So that was very interesting. I learned how to sew and paint and do pottery from one and then the other one taught me all of her mad baking skills so that was tremendous and then my grandparents like I spent so much time with all four of them growing up I mean it's priceless I, I feel bad when I mean I felt horrible for my son when my dad passed away because I'm just like he was 16 like I can't imagine being that young and not having a grandparent the rest of your life so 
that's awesome. It's rare to find someone else that has that experience in life. That's really cool. I knew I liked you for a reason. Oh, part of the reason I wanted to do this show truthfully is that I wanted my kids to have this as a time capsule. I wanted them to see how my dad answers and responds to all kinds of people from all walks of life and all different situations because my dad is still with it. My dad is still sharp. He's still hip, I think. And he can talk and speak to all of these things now. And he might not be able to in 10, 20 years from now. And I have young kids. I have a three-year-old. Right. You know, so I want him to know my dad when he's still with it. Right. That's so cool. I'm like so thankful that he thought of me to be on this show and giving me this opportunity to talk a little bit about my story. You know, it was just a glimpse into it, but it's been a remarkable experience. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Okay. This is Andrea's overwhelming story and experiences. But what the common thread is with me on her question is how do you connect with your daughter like you do? And she really answers it herself is how she's connected to her grandparents. That's how I was connected to my grandparents. And the reason why we even have this show is trying to show that there's a legacy between generations and that if we teach our children correctly and our grandchildren correctly and our great-grandchildren and can be a presence in their life, It's very meaningful. And then you actually help your family's continuum, which is called a legacy. And in your family, you have a very similar thing going on, where from generation to generation, you have the discipline and the the love of serving our country, where most of the people in your family have military experience, where they show a love of their country, but also a legacy of it and a dedication to it. And that freedom and helping other people is the title of the song. And that's really what everyone's family should be able to get the lesson from being part of America, is that it's not only a land of opportunity where you can develop and grow personally, but you're able to share that wealth, that knowledge, that experience, and be able to have a continuum and share it with other people, especially your family. What did you think of her court battle? Well, what was interesting, as you know, there was a fellow that broke into our factory like eight or nine times where we had to finally catch him with the camera ourselves. The police weren't able to catch him or maybe even care to catch him, okay? Because it was just a place that was closing down and there was items in there uh, that uh, weren't worth the risk of anybody getting shot over. And they always figured, well, if you're losing a little bit of this or a little bit of that, take it up with your insurance company. But once we caught the fella and we wanted to actually even testify against him, uh, all they did was use that court date that they told us about to go to what? To uh, When we went to show up, just before I get there, they make some type of deal with the fella and where there's some type of plea agreement that's made where I didn't even get my say in court, uh, that you had a guy with the audacity of breaking in several times over and over and over and over and over again and doing destruction to the place. And I didn't even get my day in court. The guy pleads where he gets a probation of one year. He's got to stay away from me by a hundred yards. It's going to serve one, one year in jail. Okay. And, And that was it. Case dismissed from there. So sometimes our court system that is supposed to be so just doesn't necessarily fall under the realm of just politics as usual. 
and whoever's making the deals make deals and not necessarily where the person themselves get their day in court or their justice. Yeah, there definitely needs to be some reworkings there. Oh, it's, it's very difficult because already court actions and lawyers take advantage of even their clients because they're in it to make money first, not necessarily to help their clients with <laughs> getting the right remedy. Okay. They want to just get paid, win, lose, or draw. And the longer they can drag it out, the more money they make. Eventually, like I said, some things are decided, but a lot of times it becomes very political. And a lot of times certain people are condemned worse than other people for doing the same thing. And some people get away with it where they get less damage, what they can prove. So it's a very uh, tricky situation. The way I look at it is that we have to not get bogged down with it and we're much better off clearing it the best that we can and move on with our lives. Being in the courtroom all your life is not a pleasurable happening and delays us from doing purposeful things with our lives. I hear the baby in the background, but I wanted to ask you one more question about her work with Chef Katsuji. And that's something that with all of her communications and contracts and meeting people and doing things, that still some of the family recipes growing up with the touch of food in her own family to get together with with the cooking aspect of her family's background. Look how you get attracted to that. But when you have relationships with your grandparents and with your parents and certain things that they're doing, isn't it ironic again, how we want to follow through and be able to continue to tell their story as well. I think that that's why it's related to where she's very interested in the cooking aspect and the formulas and the uh, ingredients that go into that because she's experienced wonderful, wonderful times with her papa and with her father over being a chef. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 